0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. You're watching Squawk Box and here are the headlines. China lays out a more modest growth target of 5% for the year as it kicks off its National People's Congress. Outgoing Premier Li Keqiang says the economy is showing resilience amid a tough international backdrop.
1: The economy maintains stability in overcoming difficulties, and the main development tasks of the year were basically completed in a complex environment with many changes. The Chinese economy has shown strong resilience.
0: Well, on the back of that, Chinese stocks underperform, but the rest of the region rises after Friday's Wall Street rally sees U.S. majors close the week on a high.
1: Harris Associates sells up its remaining stake in Credit Suisse amid doubts over the Swiss lender's overall strategy and accuses it of burning through capital.
2: Arm reportedly looks to raise some $8 billion and reach a valuation of over $50 billion, following the chip designer's decision to shun the UK in favour of a US listing.
0: So welcome. Uh, How yeah, are good
2: you? to see you. Yeah, very good. Brightly. Very,
0: you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> the laughter is because uh, you did a half marathon on Sunday, right?
1: Uh, and you drank half a bottle of well, No, what? Yeah, something, something <laughs> like that, I Only would half. say. Only half. Only uh, You should never uh, put No, lift, went very well good it was beautiful I, it was as close as i'm going to get to the cambridge spires Do you went yes. around all the amazing universities it it's was very pretty isn't it cambridge? was stunning yes. it was stunning yeah yes. lovely day, but yeah, cold lovely. but cold oh my god yes. freezing.
2: it's uh the whole week is going to be set to be freezing right wednesday snow in london potentially
1: well yeah but it's gonna be hot in the markets isn't it oh my goodness have you seen some of the data we got this week remarkable that we got senate testimony th- we were just talking about this um before we came on set uh,
0: the fact that we're now back below 4% on the 10-year, even as all the Fed speakers are out there continuing to bang the drum for higher rates for March. Anyway, let's... let's... Payroll
1: Friday. I don't want to tell everyone what's happening. Oh, Payroll Friday's going to be a big one. It is going to be a big one. So exciting.
0: Let's re-centralise on on the China story then. So, over the weekend, we had the National People's Congress. China setting a modest target of 5% annual growth this year after another year weighed down by COVID curbs. The announcement coming at the start of the annual session of the NPC, which kicked off on Saturday. Well, Chinese Premier Li Keqiang said the country and the world is still facing severe headwinds.
1: At present, many difficulties and challenges still confront us. Uncertainties in the external environment are on the rise. Global inflation remains high, the foundation for stable growth domestically needs to be consolidated and insufficient demand remains a pronounced
3: problem.
2: China's parliament will also vote on proposed reforms to the cabinet as well as a new lineup for the next five years, including a new premier. Let's get out to Sam for more. Sam, there's so much to unpack from the weekend, but let's just kick it off with those new forecasts for China because the reopening theme out of the mainland has been quite central for a lot of investors. Now we're dealing with a much more modest growth rate than we've had to contend with for many,
3: many years. Good morning to you Karen and if you look at the market reaction today it's very clear that investors aren't very inspired by what we heard from the government work report yesterday and that around 5% GDP growth target I just put that to Barclays actually who said that perhaps expectations were a little bit high going into this NPC particularly around stimulus there was a note out from Nomura just before the China open suggesting that the markets would be slightly disappointed perhaps with with what we got yesterday and so there seems to be this assumption and feeling in the market today that perhaps the massive stimulus which investors were really hanging out for and expecting to hear from this year's annual meeting of parliament perhaps won't be on the cards. Many economists I've spoken to today off the back of this uh, 5% GDP growth target has said that this removes the pressure to stimulate the economy in any sort of big bang way and largely because of the focus, if you listened to Premier Li Keqiang yesterday, uh, on trying to prevent debt risk when it comes to those local governments who have been under a lot of pressure over the last year with that zero COVID policy, that testing has been extremely costly. Uh, They haven't been making as much revenue from those land sales, which is a a big moneymaker for them as well because of the uncertainties around the weakness in the property sector. And as you heard Premier Li Keqiang there, they are acknowledging the challenges domestic and, and overseas as well. So this is being described as a modest target, respectable, uh, quite conservative. It is on the lower end of certainly what the market was looking for at around 5 to 6%. There are a few considerations for that. Of course, they did miss the target last year, so they are perhaps giving themselves a buffer. Um, there is also a suggestion that this was set perhaps at the back end of last year before the uh, uncertainties or I should should say, when there were more uncertainties around the reopening. Of course, since then, we've seen this better than expected data, particularly when you look at some of the PMIs, manufacturing services sector activity, really roaring back over the Lunar New Year holiday. And that is why we have seen a lot of the banks actually lifting their targets. You've got Morgan Stanley looking at 5.7%. We were speaking to the Economist Intelligence Unit on Squawk Box this morning in Asia, who also said they're looking at roughly around the same. It's the first time that they've been higher than the government targets. So um, perhaps this goes to show that the government is mindful of the persistent pressures that it is facing, with, of course, not just the property sector, but the pressures also in the labor market. And also, when you look at those softening exports, look at the data we've been getting out of the US in recent weeks. There is this view in the market that we could see rates kept higher for longer, inflation, that beast still isn't being tamed as quick as they would like. So, that is expected to exacerbate the pressure on the Those Chinese exports even further so really the big focus now is for what is likely to be a neutral it's been described as fiscal policy they're looking at three percent of GDP in terms of that budget deficit and that should give them more leeway as they are going back and resorting to that old policy playbook guys of pump priming in the economy and they hope that that will boost consumption back to you.
1: Okay, Sam, thank you very much indeed for kicking off our coverage of that for this week. Okay, the Biden administration is reportedly preparing new rules to ban US investment in Chinese advanced technologies. Uh, This, according to the Wall Street Journal, which says the new legislation could be an attempt to increase national security. Billionaire investor Mark Mobius says he can't get his money out
0: of China because of government restrictions on outflows from the country. Speaking to Fox Business, Mobius warned against putting money into China, calling the barriers, quote, Crazy. Well, let's get some comment on these new targets from Beijing. Michael Pettis joins us, Professor of Finance at Guanghua School of Management at Peking University. Michael, good morning. Nice to have you with us uh, once again. Let let me just start where Sam left off on whether 5% is ambitious at this stage, given some of the challenges we know the government is grappling with.
4: Well, Beijing has really serious headwinds, as they've mentioned, but I think this year is a little bit like 2021, where you get enormous growth, mostly as a partial reversal of the horrible previous year. So last year we saw a contraction in consumption and we'll get a partial reversal of that. Frankly, I think uh, uh, China is gonna achieve growth rates closer to 6% than to 5%, but we still need another month or two of consumption, to see if that's indeed the case.
0: Historically, the party has had a stop-start approach to the private sector. And yet we know every time the private sector is allowed to grow and thrive, it helps boost growth in the economy. There didn't seem to be a lot of comment over the weekend about any new position towards China's technology giants, or indeed to the private sector as a whole. And there were some notable absences from the NPC like Pony Ma. What do you think that implies for the role of the private sector in the growth that is now being planned?
4: Well, this may seem a little bit surprising, but I'm not sure the causality runs in that direction. I don't think it's when you allow the private sector to grow, the economy grows more. It may be the other way around. When there is more growth driven by what Beijing refers to as high quality growth, which is consumption and exports, then that tends to boost the private sector. So so what we really may be seeing um, and what we will probably see in future years is real weakness in consumption and uh, perhaps in exports. And that's what's going to constrain the growth of the private sector. I think sometimes we have the causality reversed when we think about uh, the Chinese economy.
0: Talk about stimulus then, because, again, I think as Sam pointed out in her report, there doesn't seem to have been a significant commitment to extend fiscal stimulus for the economy. We know there's been a lot of um, tinkering at the edges by the PBOC around the cost of capital. What do you think we'll ultimately see Will the government capitulate if growth isn't as strong as it hoped? And start um, once again pumping money into state-owned enterprises.
4: Yes, it it will. If if we don't get as much of a resumption in consumption as we were expecting, and of course if exports turn out to be very weak over the rest of the year, then the only way to achieve the growth target is the way they've done it, always done it in the past, uh, by expanding uh, uh, investment either in the property sector, which of course is going to be constrained or in infrastructure. They don't like to do that because there is a recognition that that's really not productive investment. And it's the source of the explosive growth we've seen in the last 10 years. Um, But if if they can't get growth through the good ways, through what they call high quality growth, then they will get it from expanding uh, uh, infrastructure spending. They always do.
2: Professor, when it comes to most economies and we talk about institutional reform, that is often seen as a good thing. But uh, in this particular situation where Xi Jinping calling for intensive reorganization, there's a fear that it's politics, not technical expertise. that's now going to dominate some of these state institutions. What signals do we look for? What sort of change do we anticipate?
4: Well, you know, a, a lot of people are very worried about that, but that may not necessarily be a bad thing. The problems that China has are very, very clear. It's got the deepest imbalances of any country that's ever followed this growth model. And one of the consequences is you see soaring debt because investment levels are so high and they're simply not productive. But as a matter of arithmetic, if you want to bring investment down, investment growth down, and either GDP growth slows or you need consumption to rise more quickly. And much of the focus is on the consumption side. But I think what people don't uh, recognize enough is that boosting consumption isn't really a technical thing uh it's really a political thing it involves a massive redistribution of income from local governments to the household sector if you really want consumption to take off and I would argue that you don't really need you know brilliant economists to do that what you what you really need uh, are uh, uh people who are able to push through what, what will be politically very, very difficult reforms. So this may not necessarily be a bad thing. You uh, um, will see.
2: Professor, can I ask you about the technology fight with the United States? Because this just keeps rolling on. I mean, last week we were talking about access to uh, certain existing chips, like revoking potentially existing export licenses, which would uh, impact the sort of chips that China can get access to from here. Uh, The government now has come up with a plan to effectively just throw money at the sector, 140 billion to subsidise the purchase of domestically produced chip making equipment. That all sounds fantastic about the the bankrolling of the sector, but there's a lack of expertise domestically. How do we see China being able to tackle its challenge now in getting hold of chips and the right technology to fuel its growth?
4: It's 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 not just a lack of uh, expertise. And if the high tech sector had been starved of capital, then I would argue that throwing a lot of capital at it is probably a good idea or at least could be a good idea. But it's not as if they've been starved of capital. Uh, private equity business in China is overflowing with money. Some of my former students say, you know, that if you can if you can wear a suit and put together a PowerPoint, you can raise money for high tech. So I'm not sure additional capital is really what the sector needs, but I don't think they have many options. I mean, what else can you do? You can't create engineers out of nothing. You can create capital for the sector. So I think that's what they're trying to do.
1: Uh, Michael, I'm intrigued at this this transfer of capital towards the consumer from the local government as well. Is that going to leave local governments stunningly exposed? And bear in mind, they're stunningly exposed anyway to the property uh, declines we've seen and the declines in revenue they've seen from new property development. Is that where one of these great problems that you talk about uh, could lie in the next few years? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, When you think
4: about China, you should really think about two different Chinas. There's sort of the good China, which are mostly the southeastern provinces, decent uh, economies, uh, high levels of income, no demographic problems. Their working populations are actually growing and their debt levels are manageable. And then you have the rest of China, which really all of the problems are concentrated. It's about two thirds of the country from a population point of view. So it's quite big. And there you have almost unsurmountable debt problems. So this whole issue of transferring income from, from governments to the, uh, to the household sector uh, creates a whole series of political conflicts, including one between the richer versus the poorer provinces. But one thing people forget is that local governments own a huge amount of assets, not just land, but um, a lot of infrastructure, operational infrastructure, uh, SOEs, etc., And so the way to get through this, the way to solve this problem involves liquidating these assets one way or another. And already we've seen uh, initial steps in that direction. Local governments are starting to count up the assets that they have, which they feel they don't necessarily need to run in order to manage, uh, uh, manage whatever it is they're supposed to manage. So we're starting to see a change there, but I'd submit to you that If you transfer a huge amount of assets away from local governments, then you must also be transferring a huge amount of political power. And that's really the constraint. That's the hard thing to do.
1: Michael, we're learning so much here, and and this is really important. So can the population differentiate if there are problems with this transfer between the problems that local government are having and central government? Does this create tensions either between the populace and local government or local government and central government, which could lead to greater ramifications?
4: I think it creates two really important tensions, one between the central government and the local governments. And as you know, local governments in China are quite powerful, the the, the cliché that everything is run out of Beijing is simply not true. The second conflict is between the richer provinces and the poorer provinces. And I think really over the next two to three years, we're going to be talking about that quite a lot.
0: Before we let you go here, you will have seen a um, very prominent uh, fund manager talking about his difficulty in getting money out of China at this time. I mean, is, is there any reason to believe that... Um, Mark Mobius has upset someone and this is an isolated case or is this, do you think, um, going to be the nature of Western investors um, struggling with China going forward?
4: Well, I have no real insight into Mobius's cases, but remember that when you invest in China, there are pretty strict, there are clear restrictions on what you're allowed to do and how you're allowed to treat the profits. And if you violate those, it may be quite difficult to take the money out. Overall, um, I think as long as foreign investors are too small to matter, and in China, they really are too small to matter, then there won't be significant problems bringing money in, in or out of the country. But if foreign investors ever reach the point where they become a sizable part of the market, Then China risks, you know, the classic developing country problem of massive inflows when times are good and massive outflows when times are bad. And the PBOC has already made clear that they're very worried about that. I don't think it's an issue now, but in a few years it may be.
0: Professor, thanks so much for taking our questions. Michael Pettis, then Professor of Finance at Guanghua School of Management at Peking University. And for more on the key announcements from the Chinese National People's Congress, including the new growth target and the government's pledge to ramp up defence spending, go to cnbc.com.
2: Coming up on the show, one of Credit Suisse's longest standing investors decides enough is enough and ditches its entire stake. We'll discuss after this. And for more on China's growth targets as the National People's Congress continues, you can check out this Sportbox podcast.
1: Right. Uh, finally, if you were along the U.S. equities last week, you had your first week out of the last four, where in the round you made some money as well. As you can see on my right here, uh, on the left, as you're looking at the screen, uh, we had a solid rally across the board on U.S. indices. Uh, on Friday. And and across the week, uh, we dipped in the middle of the week and then rallied hard into the close of the week. The US markets last week then uh, put on uh, solid rallies, 1.8% for the Dow, 1.9% for the S&P and 2.6% for the Nasdaq. You may be interested to know that the transports, which we referred to a few times last week, put on 3.3%. But why? Well, I thought the Fed was pretty stalwart in what it said. Um, The yields, of course, at one point picked up to the highest level we've seen, certainly at the short end of the curve, circa 5% for the two-year, that we've seen since 2007, 2008. The 10-year just pulling back a tad from that 4% level as well. But my goodness me, uh, when we're looking at the Treasuries, what an exciting week ahead you have got as well. Just a cherry pick as well. Uh, Today you have factory orders out of the United States. Tomorrow you've got Fed... Uh, testimony uh, in the Senate from Mr. Powell uh, on Wednesday. Always interesting to see the jolts data, how many jobs vacancies are there. It's pretty much two for one at the moment, isn't it? Two job vacancies for every one American looking for work. Jobless claims uh, on Thursday. And then the mummy and daddy of all data as well. The payroll report, which so blew a lot of the analysts out of the water. Let's be honest about it. They got it completely wrong last time around with a 500,000 handle in terms of jobs created last month. This month, something far more modest. uh, And I've already read comments from HFE, for instance, talking about a payback for those blowout numbers last month means we may get an incredibly modest figure this time around. Let's just see. Dollar crosses look like this. The U.S. dollar last week lost seven tenths of one percent in terms of the dollar index. So just abated from its highs. The pound pottering around 120. The euro dollar 106.39. Dollar yen 135.73. And the dollar yuan, we spent a lot of time talking about China just now, 6.914. The oil price last week, well, it was a very strong week for uh, the commodities, although just giving back a bit of ground today. 85.24 on uh, Spot Crude, WTI trading just under 80 bucks at 79.13. Spot Gold trading 185 per troy ounce. And the opening calls for the European markets, it looked pretty flattish first time I looked actually, but now let's have another little look at those. Yeah, there you go, FTSE 100, flat as a pancake. Uh, minor inclines across the board for the other European uh, indices. Now, if you've been in a trade, maybe you fall in love with the trade sometimes, you get a little bit overwhelmed, and what do you do when that trade just for years underwhelms? What do you do? Do you stick, do you twist, or do you just say, I'm done, do you fold?
0: Uh, Harris Associates, one of uh, Credit Suisse's longest standing shareholders, has divested its entire stake. The investment manager, CEO, David Hero, uh, questioned the future of the franchise amid outflows from the bank's wealth management unit and frustration over its handling of its CS first Boston spin-off. Uh, this a report in the Financial Times. The move leaves the Saudi National Bank and Qatar Investment Authority as Credit Suisse's largest shareholders Holding just under 17 percent of the bank between them, the Swiss lender expects to report a third straight year of losses. Well, Harris began selling its stake after Credit Suisse launched its more than four billion dollar fundraising effort back in October. Apparently it first bought Credit Suisse stock more than 20 years ago, doubling its money when it sold prior to the financial crisis. Harris bought again. Before the stock rose again in 2009, but it's been on a downward trajectory ever since. I spoke to CEO Ulrich Körner in February and asked him how he planned to convince markets of Credit Suisse First Boston's
3: value. As we said, end of October, we are doing all of that new Credit Suisse transformation CSFB to create shareholder value. And we will. No question. We will. And CSFB and the transaction around Michael Klein's business strengthen us on that path to create CSFB. It strengthens our advisory capabilities. It will accelerate our path into new CSFB. And therefore, I'm completely convinced that's an important next step in doing what we laid out end of October.
0: Ulrich Kerner, there, and the good news for investors this morning. Jeffries has just cut the target to two Swiss francs 60 from 380. Thanks, Jeffries, for that.
1: Credit Suisse um, was a a happy hunting ground for Hero at the start of the century. They made some money up to the financial crisis. I believe they got out of some of the state, then they got back in again, uh, and then have lost vast amounts of money on that investment, you know, 90% plus of that investment. So they've thrown in their cards. Now, what is interesting is you've got a new echelon, a new breed of shareholders in the Qataris and indeed the Saudis as well. And at the time, I was looking back just this morning on the back of this FT story about this I uh, had our own copy for when the Saudis bought in. And we put the Saudis bought in or said they were buying in at the tail end of October. On that screen there, you can see at the tail end of October, uh, these shares were trading roughly for Swissy. So let's say for sake of argument, the Saudis paid 38 for Swissy. They said at the time it's a steal, it's a great investment as well. Well, they're already looking at a solid 25%-ish. You know, We're using approximate numbers yeah. here, but they are on the wrong side of this trade at the moment as well. They have become a long-term uh, cornerstone investor as well. And they obviously believe there's value. Hero, which has seen this strategy evolve under many CEOs and chairmen over the years, think actually, that's a nonsense. We're just getting out of this one and we're just licking our wounds, but we don't even think there's going to be a rally from these stunning lows. I mean, if you look at that chart on the screen, and thank you, team, because you put some great charts up as well, there is no hint whatsoever of a recovery in the shares. They may well recover. They may well have a fantastic rally. I'm not making a judgment on that, but at the moment looking at the the, the chart compared to the European banking sector, which has had a solid rally, there is no hint of... And this goes back to our eternal question that we've asked many, many times. Are you better off picking up the best in breed hoping that European banks rally, or do you pick up one that's not only been downbeaten by the, the macro events and the low interest rates that we had, but also has, has its own uh, individual problems? And the answer at the moment... Looks like you're best off not investing in Credit Suisse. Again, I'm not making a judgment on where they're going, just where they've been.
2: Use the terminology cornerstone investor for the Saudis. I use the word anchor investor because you've got this sort of ball and chain around you. I mean, there have been two trades here. One to dollar cost average in to effectively make your trade look slightly better, or the second to sell out. You know, well-worn strategy for hedge funds. You don't need to make your money back where you've lost it. And you think about where they are making their money at this point, they've looked at other banks. Lloyd's, for instance, Intesa Sao Paulo, BNP Paribas, Sarah and Julius Bear. And the reality is, the difference in performance just over one year has been stunning versus the Credit Suisse trade. The best of it has effectively been BNP Paribas up forty-one percent over the past year versus minus fifty-six for Credit Suisse. Because it is not the same structural time problems. But I mean, you think about that gap in performance just by a single stock yeah, picking enormous. in the same sector—that is huge. Uh, the question is, what comes uh, next from here? And we haven't seen the rot stop at Credit Suisse. We're still at the point day after day we're talking about bad news. And effectively, one of the um, different uh, comments that was made from Harris and the FT was that they thought there were better dividends, share buyback potential elsewhere, better NIMS, better profitability. And just to tackle the NIMS argument, there was a story about three or four days ago suggesting that Credit Suisse was paying up to about six and a half percent on three month deposits perhaps even up to 7% on one-year deposits to its Asian customers to try to attract the money. You think about that type of rate. I mean, we know global interest rates have gone up, not to that extent. So the NIMS story cannot be that great for Credit Suisse if they're having to offer up those sort of incentives to attract the money through the front door.
0: This, I mean, they've got to stop the outflows, end of story. Uh, If you are going to project yourself as best-of-breed wealth management, and and private client management you have to stop the money going out of the door. And I think that's what's going on with the accounts in Asia, because they've clearly tried to target high net worth coming out of China and across the region as a whole. And this is one way, I guess, that they hope to at least stabilise the outflows. But as we have this conversation, of course, we know that there is also a probe going on around assertions that were made by Axel Lehman towards the end of the year. And I think at, at Davos, where he he talked about actually the tide has turned on the outflows and I was in Zurich and we looked at those horrible numbers and they were horrible and I think that was a big shock to everybody so if Harris Associates actually had started uh, running down their positions in October of last year well well maybe um, they finally did wake up and see some of the underlying challenges remaining unresolved here um Of course, in that same interview in February that we've paid a little bit of a clip from, we heard the CEO saying, no, 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 the outflows are stabilising. In fact, we've seen inflows back in some parts of the business. Let's see. I think the jury is still out on the whole programme that this uh, business has embarked upon to try and turn things around. And we know this year is going to be another loss-making year. They've already stated that fact. So to your point about if there is life in the patient, when do we start to see the flicker of recovery? I think we just are are still on waiting watch.
1: And I've just got to say, I'm sorry, I know a lot of Credit Suisse employees and have done over the years, and a lot of them now are probably watching this channel going... What's my remuneration going to be like? And I don't mean to be, it's not, it's about, you know, the, the survival of the bank or the, the profitability of the bank and where it goes next. But if you're a talented individual, and I know a lot of people who want to kick the banking sector, say, so what's talent, what's talent? But you are a, a very big commodity. If you've got a good client base, your own personal client base, and you want to build your career in banking, A, would you go to Credit Suisse at the moment? And B, would you stay at Credit Suisse? And I'm not here to kick Credit Suisse. I'm, I'm quite the opposite. I want to see European banks do well. But actually, you've got to look at yourself as an individual and where your career is going to be. Uh, and then from the bank's point of view, look at your cost income ratio to keep those people during uncertain times in markets. And it is a real challenge at a personal level.
2: Now, you do wonder, given that incentive scheme now to create almost like a Goldman's uh, type of model where you get promoted from managing director to a partner type model at first Boston. So wonder whether... That is a, a model that some of the, the bankers want to go for because well, you get uh, paid out more handsomely, right? You get a greater share if the bank does perform.
0: Uh, the, the problem is, I think, the, the new clawback arrangement in the compensation package has a lot of people unhappy. And it's it's an adjustment that was made, I think, to uh, incentivize people to stay, but also to encourage them you know, to, to work hard mm. and... Yeah, a lot of people were not happy about the way the, the compensation arrangements have been restructured here because, you know, how long after leaving an organization do you have to wait before you get confirmation actually that the bonuses that were paid to you remain in your bank account? Or do you have to leave them there just in case at some point you get the tap on the shoulder and you get told, sorry, um, it's got to be paid back now? So I think that's caused a lot of unhappiness.